This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And we love to tell stories about faith whenever we can, and redemption. And this is one of our best redemption stories, brought to us by our very own Joey Cortez. Ron Brown grew up on the west side of Chicago. I grew up in a family where my uncles were were drug dealers and pimps, and I saw that growing up as a kid, and it never appealed to me. I can remember as a kid seeing my uncles get shot and different things like that, and you know, one one guy tried to murder my uncle, and and and, and just and just seeing it, and just being a kid like five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, growing up, being like, this ain't the way this is supposed to be. I I, I watch certain stories, and, and kids say growing up in the inner city, how they saw drug dealers, and that's the only people they saw, and and for them, they saw it as a as a means to an end to get out the ghetto or to. As a kid, I don't know what God blessed me with, <laughs> but He blessed me with the ability to see that I was wrong, and that wasn't the way for me to go about my life. He was also blessed with a strong mother who divorced his biological father when Ron was a kid. I can remember he was part of an accident fraud scheme. And I remember being a kid telling him, I was like, hey man, this, this, you're gonna get in trouble. He'd say, son, you know what? I'm making my living the best way I know how. And eventually he ended up going to prison for a few years for that. And I can remember being a kid and him writing me letters and saying, hey, you know, when I get out, things are going to be different. I'm going to spend more time with you. Um, I think it's important. And the thing was, he got out and nothing ever changed. He went back to what he knew and he ended up being in the streets for a few more years and he went to jail. My dad was like the real, you ever seen the movie Catch Me If You Can? He was like the real Catch Me If You Can. You understand what I'm saying? When he came to doing checks and stuff like that. And so I can remember having that example from a very young age and seeing all the cars and houses, and I was like, it just never appealed to me. My mother was fortunate enough and I was fortunate enough. She got married when I was about three or four years old to a great man by the name of Lawrence Hunt. And uh, he was my stepfather and he did everything in his power to just raise me the right way. And I'm so appreciative for that influence. Even right now as a 45 year old man, I think about the lessons in which he taught me. and just different things about manhood and responsibility and all those things. And so um, I think having a father made a, a, a drastic difference in my life. My mother was a pretty tough lady. I mean, beyond measure, she was a pretty strong, tough lady. Uh, she's about 6'2", six 6'3", six and uh, she didn't play. And my stepfather was about 6'5", and he didn't play either. So um, I grew up in a home where um, my parents were really about education. That was very important to them. I remember being a kid and saying, hey, you know, I want to be a professional athlete. I want to do this. I want to do that. And my parents were always like, look, you know, that's a great goal. But let me give you an amazing dream. Whatever you can do with your mind instead of your body will facilitate you to have a very, very lengthy career. I can remember my father getting tickets to take me to go see uh, the Chicago Bulls. And I was sitting there watching them playing. And Michael Jordan was lighting them up that night. I think he might have had about 45 points or something. And the, the, the arena, everybody was yelling and screaming. And, and, and I'm eating my popcorn. And I'm looking. And I got a pretzel in one hand and popcorn on the floor. And drinking and drinking. I'm having my best time ever. And he taps me on the shoulders when the Bulls call a timeout. And he says, son, let me ask you something. I said, what? He says, who has the greatest job in this whole arena? And I kind of looked at him because I thought it was a crazy question. And I was like, 
Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan has the greatest job. Everybody's yelling for him. Everybody's screaming for him. And he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, you see that box up there with those guys walking around eating those hot dogs? And I said, yeah. He says, they have the best job in the building. They're the ones who pay Michael Jordan. And so even though people may not be screaming for him, they're the reason why all this is going on. So I want you to learn the big picture approach to life. And so that just really kind of got me thinking in life. They said, you know what? Mike's going to retire one day, but the Bulls are still going to be here. Mike's going to have an injury one day. But guess what? The Bulls are the Bulls are still going to be here. And he's like, that's what I'm getting. I want to I want you to learn about life. Being the guy that's still there as transitions continue to happen through life. And that lesson really, really stayed with me all through life. You know, it was a big lesson for me. My father, I'm going to tell you something. It, it wasn't a good experience with him growing up. But those bad experiences with him made me, I think today, a much better father. So he would say, hey, I'm going to pick you up. You know, so get dressed. We're going to go. We're going to hang out for the day. And so my mother would say, hey, look, don't don't make this kid promises and you not show up. And I can remember one particular time getting dressed up. I mean, I had on my pants and my shirt and my tie and sitting it out the window. And I paged him and said, hey, I paged him. He called me. I said, hey, I'm ready. He says, OK, I'll be there in a little while. And I can remember sitting in the window, dressed up and looking out the window and waiting on my father to come and waiting on him to come until the point that I fell asleep. And my stepfather picking me up and putting me to bed and taking my shoes off. And I kind of woke up as he was picking me up. I said, did he come? And he said, no, he didn't come. He says, but you know what? I'm here. And I always remember that memory, you know? And so for me, anything with my, with my children, um, I don't care if it's a basketball game. I don't care if it's a football game. If I tell them I'm coming, I'm coming. And so through the years, I never hated my father because he was my father. But I didn't understand. And so with that, I was able to find out how he grew up that, you know, his father one day said he was going out to the store to go get a, a pack of cigarettes. And he asked him and his brother, what did he want? And they said they wanted some candy. He said, OK, I'll be back. His father never came back. And he may have been like six, five or six. He never saw his father again. And so at that point, I kind of realized that my father didn't know how to be a father because he never had that example. So I grew up with those things. And, and I'll tell you something. Of course, they shape you, but I didn't let them break me. And I think some of these situations in our lives, they break us and they turn us into broken people. And so from, from that moment on in my life, as, as I went up, I had, like I said, I had a great stepfather. I was just very determined that I would never do that to my kids. And so no child of mine can say, hey, I sat there on the doorstep and waited for my dad to come and he didn't come. And that's important to me. And you're listening to Ron Brown and his real dad, his biological dad. Well, he was a character right out of Catch Me If You Can. Just a black version, passing checks, living a bad life, making bad choices. He grew up, though, in a home that was all about education, a stepdad that really loved him right. He said, those bad experiences of my biological father made me a better father. And I never hated my father. I didn't understand him until I learned about how he grew up. His father's father, when he was five or six years old, went to the corner store and never came back. When we come back, more of Ron Brown's story here on Our American Story.
And we're back with Our American Stories and Ron Brown's story. We left off with Ron describing his difficult relationship with his absent father and the lessons he learned from that. Back to Ron with the rest of this story. The funny story about it is that he came to my high school graduation at Holy Trinity, and he made a big deal about it, and he told me he was so proud of me for graduating high school. And um, I think I saw him a little bit over that summer, and I never saw him again. I didn't see him again until 20 years later, which is really kind of crazy because he had a brother, and his brother had died. And so I think I was living in Atlanta at the time, and I got word that my father had died, and I thought he had actually died but it was kind of some confusion. So for years, I thought he was dead. A few summers after that, my wife sent some information in for us to be on the Family Feud. And so we become contestants on the Family Feud with Steve Harvey, and they tape it up in Atlanta, and we go ahead and we have this, this show, and we lose by one question. And we were like, man, we came all the way up here, we had a good time, but it would have been nice if we would have won. And so this is why I think about how everything happens for a reason. Well, fast forward years later, because after you do a Family Feud episode, they keep playing the episode over and over and over and over and over again. And so it stays in rotation for years. And so I had just started law school and I was making a trek from Atlanta to Birmingham three nights a week for school. And it was one particular night I was leaving criminal law class and I get a phone call from a number I had never seen before. And I was like, who's this calling me this late? It's about, I don't know, eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. And I answered the phone. And it's just something about your parents' voice. You never forget it. And even though I hadn't heard my father's voice for 20 plus years, the phone rings and I answer it. And he says, hello, son. And at that moment, I just broke down and cried. I had to pull over to the side of the road of Highway 20. And I was like, dad? And he was like, son, I've been looking for you. And I was like, I've been looking for you. I was like, how did you get my number? And it was a ray of emotions and, 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 and I was crying and he was crying. And he said, you know, I, I went and did some time and, you know, I lost track of you when I got out and I didn't know where you were. He said, I always knew you. You always said you wanted to be in business. You want to be a businessman. And I looked and looked and he says, I'm going to tell you something. I actually was sitting down with my girlfriend the other night. We were watching Family Feud. He says, I never watched Family Feud. It's her favorite show. And, and, and it came to you and you said your name. And he said, that's my son. And she said, that's not your son. He's like, no, that's my son. That's what I've been looking for. That's my son. He's like, she didn't believe me. He says, well, what he did was he listened to my mother-in-law, Don White. When you do that, the, the family feud, they ask you, what do you do and where do you live and all that? And so at that moment in time, she was a senior VP for Coca-Cola. And she said that. And so his girlfriend and him called Coca-Cola. They got in contact with her and she did some vetting. I didn't even know this was going on, but she did some vetting and to make sure he who he said he was. And then they called my wife and they went on a three way. And my wife was like, we thought you were dead. And he's like, no, that's my brother. And so on and so on. And they gave him my number and we talked and I just cried like a baby. And we talked for about an hour. And I just told him, you know what, despite everything in the world, I still love you. And you're my father. You're the reason why I'm here. And that was very important to me because I lost my mother back when I was 27 years old. So him and I kind of reconnected when I was probably like around 38, 38 years old. And so that was a powerful moment for me because as a man, even though I had a wife and a children, I had uh, loving cousins and I have one uncle that exists, you still feel a level of loneliness because my parents, you know, I felt that both my parents were going and it just, I would always ask myself, well, who buries me? You know, if something happens to me, you know, um, and of course you have a wife and like I said, children, but you think about that. And there was a kind of a, a loneliness in me because of not having closure, I guess with him, 
But due to the fact that he was still alive, we went ahead and put our relationship back together that night. I actually ended up flying to go see him two days later and I spent my birthday with him. But I can give you an irony of that, though. My wife had had our our second son, Jackson. And so she said, what do you want to name him? And we got some names. I said, we're going to name him Jackson. I said, but his middle name is going to be Owen. And so my wife was very surprised. She was like, why would you name him Owen? Your father and you guys didn't have the best relationship. Why would you name him Owen? I said, you know what? Despite us not having the greatest relationship, I still love my father and I wanted him to be better. And at that time in his life, maybe he couldn't be. I said, but you know what? I forgive him for everything that's happened in my life. I, I just forgive him and I can't hold on to it. And I said, you know, Jackson Owen Brown, you know, he'll make that name good. You know, this kid will never go to the penitentiary. This kid will do something great with his life and will have his grandfather's name. And so my wife thought that was very powerful. And she said, okay, his name will be Jackson Owen Brown. Well, the irony of that is that my son was born around that time, like about two weeks before my father came back in my life. So I, I don't know if people think about life and letting things go and getting right with God or getting right with who you are as an individual, but I actually believe in my heart that of me making that decision to forgive my father for everything that had happened in the past, every hurt, every hardship, every disappointment, and giving my youngest son his name, I think for some way that opened the door and that allowed us to find each other. And that's been seven years ago. And so now that I'm a grown man and he's a grown man, of course, he's in his um, latter 60s, we talk every other day. And we have a great father and son relationship, something that I always wanted that I never imagined having later in life. But that's my guy. He came to my law school graduation and he was very proud. And he looked and said, you know what, to see how I did everything wrong in life and to see that you did so much right. I'm just so proud of you. So that's a that's that's a big part of my journey. So even though he didn't start off being the most amazing dad in the world, years later, he's become a great, 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 a great dad and a great grandfather. You know, something my parents would always see me, my mom always taught me was the importance of forgiveness, that nobody's perfect. And she always just said that she's like, there's there's no such thing as a perfect person um, that, that just doesn't exist. And everyone does something wrong. And she would always talk about, you know, when Jesus would say, who could throw the first stone? And no one can throw the first stone. And even though he didn't get it right. I was open to allowing him to get it right. I was open. I think you have to be open sometimes. But my parents always taught me the importance of forgiveness. And, and it's a big thing. You have to forgive because he, here you are carrying that around with you. I just really think that it just really, really erodes your spirit. It erodes everything in you because you're carrying around the baggage and the hurt of something that happened years and years and years ago. And when you can't get over it and you can't move past it, it keeps you locked in that place. One of my good friends, he's a mentor of mine. He always said that anger is, is is a wasted emotion. Anger will cost you a lot in your life. There are a lot of people sitting in the penitentiary right now because they were angry in a second and they did something that if they could take back, they would. And so I just learned the importance of just, you can't hold on to it. Sometimes you got to move on and move past it, but you can't hold on to it because it keeps you stuck. So th there's a line in the Bible where Jesus said, how many times should you forgive somebody? And it's an enormous numbers, like 60 times, 60 times. You know, it's, it's really kind of crazy that that's what the Lord and Savior says, that, that you should. And I'll give you the greatest story of that is that Jesus knew that Judas was going to be a Judas. You know, J Jesus knew that 
he was going to be betrayed by Judas. But Jesus still continued the journey with him. And so it was all the fact that he knew he was going to betray him, but he still loved him. And that's an important message right there. He, he still loved him. He, he knew he was going to do what he did, but he still loved him and he kept him around. If you read the Bible, you know, there was points where, you know, they kind of felt that he was stealing. But Jesus was so in love with the man and the relationship that that didn't even matter. And that's pretty tough in this day and age for someone to still love someone, even though that's the way it is. But you know what? I equate that to like a true father's love. You know, our kids don't always do what we want them to do. They don't always go the way we want them to go. But they're still our children and we still love them and we still desire relationships with them and we still wish them well. And I think that's how God looks at us on the throne, even though we get up in the morning and maybe we have great intentions and some people have bad intentions, but they go out here and they do things. But he's still in love with you. He's still in love with who you are. And the door is always open for you to come back. There's nothing you've done that's been too enormous that God can't forgive. And I think that's the most powerful thing about the Christian faith is that the door is always open for you. And I'm nowhere near Jesus Christ. I'm nowhere near God. But I've learned the importance of keeping the door open because people can change. People can change. What a message from Ron Brown. And when faith is a part of people's lives, we put it right out there. And his forgiveness, which came straight from his faith, well, it opened a door. And my goodness, what a door it opened. He was able to give his father the opportunity to be the dad he wasn't. And he said, now my dad, who didn't start off as a good father, is now a great father and a great grandfather. And my goodness, what he did with his wife just weeks before, wanting to name his son after the father that was never there with the middle name, and the wife saying, what gives? And him walking through that he'd forgiven his own dad and teaching his wife the power of forgiveness. And two weeks later, that call comes. I've been looking for you. Hello, son. And he said, I just cried. Some of us believe in coincidence. Some of us believe in fate and destiny. And some of us believe in God. And for believers, that's a God moment, a God wink if ever there is one. Ron Brown's story, and we'd love to hear yours. Send your stories to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Ron Brown's story, a beauty, here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories. Sturm, Ruger, and Company, Inc., better known by the shortened name Ruger, is an American firearm manufacturing company based in Southport, Connecticut, with production facilities also in New Hampshire, North Carolina, and Arizona. Ruger is the biggest gun manufacturer in the country, and it's not by accident. In the words of William Ruger, each firearm is built, quote, to a standard so I would want one even if it was made by our competitors. Ruger's motto is, quote, arms makers for responsible citizens, unquote. And here to tell this American story is Logan Medish. Logan is a firearms historian and museum professional who runs High Caliber History, LLC. Here's Logan. 
The timing really couldn't have been better for William Ruger when he and Alexander Stern became business partners in January of 1949. Ruger had been making hand tools for the previous few years, but unfortunately business was not going well for him. He found himself $40,000 in debt and he was pretty much ready to close up shop when he showed Sturm a prototype of something that he was working on which harkened back to his earlier days with military arms development. So Sturm liked what he saw and agreed to bankroll the project with $50,000 in seed money. And just like that, those two men began laying the foundation for what would become one of the largest firearm companies in the United States. But in order to get there, you have to realize where they came from. So let's start with William Ruger. His dad was a lawyer, and his mother was from a family that owned a successful chain of department stores. As an interesting aside, his great-grandfather was actually a drummer boy at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Anyway, so uh, Bill Ruger had always been interested in firearms and tinkering with designs and, and very mechanically inclined. Uh, in fact, he patented his first machine gun when he was just 16 years old. With the help of his aunt, who had set him up with a college fund, he ended up going to the University of North Carolina, where he continued to work on arms designs, specifically a blow-forward style machine gun. While he was in college, he met a girl named Mary Thompson. She was from a well-heeled family there in North Carolina, and they got married in 1938. Bill was just finishing up his sophomore year of college, but when he got married, he quit, and the two of them promptly took off for a three-month-long European honeymoon. Once back in the States, Bill continued to work on developing different firearms designs, and one of the things he started to do was tinker with an existing design. He took a, a Savage Model 99 lever-action rifle, and converted it into a gas-operated, self-loading repeating rifle. And rightly so, he was pretty darn proud of his work, so he took it to New York City and demonstrated it to the executives at Savage, and found himself rather baffled when they weren't absolutely astounded with what he had done. You know, he was hoping they would buy the design and, and bring him on board as, as a designer and offer him a job, but that just wasn't the case. So. Bill found himself with a young wife, a newborn son, Bill Jr., an empty inheritance coffer, and no job. So he went back down to North Carolina, and as luck would have it, he ended up getting a telegram that offered him a job at Springfield Armory in Springfield, Massachusetts, for $32.50 a week. And it was really not something he was in a position to pass up, so he took the job. But he didn't stay there for terribly long. He ended up quitting in the spring of 1940. He quit because he didn't want to end up like John Garand, who he felt was treated like a, a mechanical toy and was paid what he felt to be a mediocre salary for all of his contributions. Which is really saying something because John Garand is, of course, one of the, the greatest arms designers of the 20th century 
and you or I or anyone else in, in the, the gun world would uh, consider it an honor to end up like John Garand, but not Bill Ruger. That was not good enough for him. He aspired to higher things. So he went and continued refocusing his efforts on his machine gun designs, and he pitched the idea to Smith & Wesson. Now, they turned him down, but they did offer him a job. They saw his potential as a designer, and Smith & Wesson offered him a job for $75 a week, which was a nice pay bump, obviously. But Bill's pride kind of got in the way, and he rejected it, and on down the road he went to another gun company, this time High Standard. They weren't interested, but they told him again to head on down the road and try his luck with auto ordinance. So Bill went over to Auto Ordnance, and a little while later they ended up hiring him as an arms designer, and his pay was somewhere around $100 a week. So he took that job around the beginning of World War II, and he stayed on as an arms designer for them until the end of the war in 1945. By 1946, Bill had gone into business for himself. He always wanted to be self-employed and, and have the, the freedom to do his own thing and design his own stuff. And so that's exactly what he did with the Ruger Corporation. They were making uh, hand tools and small industrial parts. And also he was working on his design for a 22 caliber pistol. But unfortunately, like I'd mentioned earlier on, business wasn't doing so well. The whole hand tool concept was a good idea, but it was proving too pricey for the market. So by 1949, Bill was basically flat broke when he met Alexander Sturm. Now, Sturm was an interesting guy. He was a, a legacy Yale graduate, and like Bill, was from a well-to-do family, and was always sporting custom-tailored clothes and taking weekend trips to New York City, and while the rest of his Yale classmates ate at the cafeteria on campus, he dined at the finest restaurants in the hotels in, in the local area. He was kind of a renaissance man. He dabbled in a little bit of everything, including writing, acting, painting, filmmaking, and he was also a big-time collector of all sorts of different things, one of which just happened to be firearms. Adding to the oddity that is the life of Alexander Sturm, this well-bred young man served during World War II with the Office of Strategic Services, which was the forerunner of sorts for today's CIA. So with that $50,000 worth of seed money, they started their company and their first factory, and I, I use that term loosely, was in a small, unassuming building that they affectionately dubbed the Red Barn across the street from a railroad depot in Southport, Connecticut. It was essentially just Bill and Alex and a couple of toolmakers all working, you know, long, long hours into the night. And uh, Bill actually mentioned at one point he was writing the final payroll check from the initial $50,000 and they were out of cash and, and he told Alex, he said, this is the last bit of money for the original $50,000 investment. But that was okay because they had designed this pistol together and Alex Sturm had checks for a hundred guns that were ready to be sent out into the mail. And so just like that, they were in business, the seed money paid off. Now, this gun that they designed together was inspired by World War II handguns from the Axis powers. It had a, a similar silhouette appearance, 
of both the Japanese Nambu and the German Luger in certain ways. Uh, the ergonomics of those guns were tweaked a little bit to create what would become known as the Ruger Standard, uh, and the gun would go on to be lauded by shooters for generations as being well-balanced, easy to hold, and easy to shoot. Unfortunately, the gun is a bit of a, a Rubik's Cube in design when it comes to uh, putting the gun back together. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Ruger. The great American company, and my goodness, how it got started is like how so many companies got started. On the cheap and almost out of business from the beginning. More of the story of Ruger, the great American gun company, after these messages. This is Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories and the story of Ruger, the great American arms manufacturer right here in the United States. Let's continue with this great business story. There's a, a joke in the gun community that God came to Bill Ruger in a dream and showed him the design for the Ruger Standard pistol, but unfortunately Bill woke up before God could tell him how to put it back together. Anyway, uh, when, when the gun was first put into production and they were working on things, they had a total of eight barreled pistol receivers that they had made as test guns for this new design. And serial number three of these guns was actually the first one to leave the factory. Serial numbers one and two were retained internally for further study. By February of 1950, Sturm, Ruger & Company had a back order of an astounding 5,000 units and a production capacity of just 900 guns a month. By summer of the same year, the backlog had grown to 9,000 units and their production capacity had picked up a little bit, but they were still only able to make 1,000 guns a month. That backlog is a testament to that little gun's rugged design and its ease of use and its affordability. Finally, finally, there was a 22 caliber pistol on the market that anyone could afford to own and that was easy enough for anyone to learn how to shoot with this gun. Within a year, that little startup company from Connecticut had gained traction and continued to advance at a rapid pace. But Alex Sturm contracted viral hepatitis and died very unexpectedly in November of 1951. He was just 28 years old. The company's heraldic eagle logo that today is instantly recognizable as Ruger, that eagle was actually designed by Alex Sturm. And so, paying homage to his fallen business partner, Bill Ruger changed the color of the eagle in the logo from red to black. And with the exception of the one millionth Ruger standard pistol that they produced in 1979, it wasn't until 1999, with the celebration of their 50th anniversary, that the logo would return to red on all of their guns. 
So even though they had the tremendous setback of Alex Sturm passing away unexpectedly at a very young age, Bill Ruger was a, a shrewd businessman and he didn't want to rest on their laurels and be, be seen as one-trick pony, so he knew that they were going to have to diversify their offerings beyond that 22 caliber pistol. Given the popularity of westerns and cowboy six-guns in the 1950s, the Ruger Company introduced their first single-action revolver in 1953. The revolver was an instant success, and the company introduced the Single Six, the Black Hawk, and the Bearcat, all of which were single-action revolvers, all by the end of that decade, and each one of them was a hit. Next up, rifles. So the Deerstalker, the 1022, the number one, the Model 77, and so on, were all added to the lineup uh, in the 1960s. And due to the brand's success and popularity, the company became publicly traded for the first time in 1969. Now, it would go on to be listed on the New York Stock Exchange in 1990, but today it remains the only American arms manufacturer that is publicly traded as a standalone entity and not grouped into a larger parent organization. So they're flying high by the end of 1969. Uh, they've been in business 20 years and now it's time for a flop. But it wasn't a gun. Bill Ruger collected high-end antique automobiles, and so in that vein, he designed what was known as the Ruger Sports Tourer, which was a car based on the Bentley, and it had an estimated retail price of twelve dollars to $13,000. Bill read the market wrong uh, with the car, and it, that was kind of a rare occurrence for him. He usually was a, a keen eye and knew what people wanted, but they did not want this car. So they'd only made two of them when they turned their focus back to making guns. Unfortunately, they'd already spent eight years and $400,000 developing a car that never made it to production. Nonetheless, when they turned their attention back to guns, they did well in the 70s. By 1979, which was the company's 30th anniversary, four of the models they offered had already sold a million units each, and they finished up their 30th anniversary with sales totaling $68.8 million and a profit of $7.9 million, which was up like 14% over the previous year alone. So by 1989, and at, at this point in American history, the idea of a so-called assault weapons ban was really picking up steam. And so Bill Ruger wrote a letter to every member of Congress and he told them that they should limit magazine capacity instead of trying to ban these so-called assault weapons. Taking it a step further, in a couple more years, he would sit down with NBC in 1992, and in that interview he was quoted as saying that no honest man needs more than 10 rounds in any gun. And backlash against Bill and the company was swift. Gun owners as a whole have very long memories, and there are still some people to this day that will not own a Ruger firearm because of what Bill said. Fortunately for them, you know, they, they make a good product and there were enough people who still rallied around the brand and they found themselves in 1999 celebrating their 50th anniversary. And by that point in time, they had really cemented their place both in firearms history and in American history. You know, quite literally tens of millions of gun owners had Ruger firearms in the field hunting, sitting in their home gun safes, 
out on the range with their kids, sitting in the gun rack in their trucks. You know, Ruger firearms were everywhere. And over the years, Bill Ruger had the opportunity to buy a whole bunch of other companies. Even if you don't know firearms, you still know names like Colt, Smith & Wesson, Remington, and Winchester. He had the opportunity to buy all of those companies and didn't. And it wasn't just gun companies. Beyond that, he had the opportunity to buy both Maserati, the sports car company, and Harley-Davidson, the iconic motorcycle company. Instead, he chose to focus on his guns. By 2000, Bill was 84 years old, and he decided it was finally time to retire. Now, retirement was kind of an odd thing for Bill. In 1992, he did an interview with Forbes magazine when he told him that he could never retire because he'd never done a god day's work in his life. So how can you retire if you've never worked? Uh, nonetheless, he did retire, and his son took over as chairman and CEO of the company. Bill had also said around that same time that if you rest, you rust. And so that's why he tried to keep so active. And unfortunately, retirement meant rest, and it meant rust. So Bill Ruger died in 2002, having spent 53 years involved in the operations of the company that he helped found. And his son, Bill Ruger Jr., passed away in 2018 after working for his father's company for 42 years. He retired in 2006, and so even though there's been no direct Ruger descendant running the company in more than a decade, they are definitely one of the big players on the block in terms of American firearms. The Ruger Standard pistol that they initially created back in 1949 lives on today in a variant known as the Mark IV. Unlike the previous three versions, it maintains all of the classic appeal and lines of the standard, but it just kind of updates the platform for today's market. Most importantly, however, it solves the difficulty of takedown and reassembly. So now that Bill Ruger is spending all of his time up above with God, he was finally able to have God show him how to put the pistol back together. And so now that the Mark IV has ironed out all the kinks in the design, the gun can remain at the forefront as uh, an incredibly popular gun for people to learn how to shoot on, both young and old, beginner and seasoned pros alike. The humble startup that consisted of just a few guys in a red barn now has more than 1,800 employees. They're still headquartered in Connecticut, but now they've got five factories throughout the country. The original Red Barn building still stands, but they have obviously long since outgrown it, and today it's home to a real estate company. It is, however, still red. Uh, Alexander Sturm's $50,000 investment really paid off. The company today is worth $940 million. And given their success, I think it's safe to say that Mr. Sturm and Mr. Ruger would have big smiles on their faces if they could see where their company is at today. And a very special thanks to Logan Medish. Logan is a firearms historian and museum professional who runs High Caliber History, LLC. And again, that's a very special thanks to Logan for, for telling us that story. And my goodness, what a story. 1,800 employees off a $50,000 loan. Two guys just, well, never working a minute in their lives, they probably felt. And so many people who work for themselves, that's why they do it. Because they have something special they want to do. And my goodness... 
anyone who owns weapons, who loves firearms, and responsible firearm ownership is a big deal. But he testified and went public on magazine capacity. My goodness, that took a lot of courage to do. And he did it. And we love to tell these stories. Share yours with ours, your favorite stories about local businesses that really make a difference in your town. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Ruger, the great American gun manufacturer. Their story here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love telling your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we rip this next story straight out of the headlines of the Wall Street Journal, and it was one of the most popular stories for almost a month running. And... We decided to track it down, and today we have on Julie Lawson, the daughter of Sonny and Bryna Hurwitz. They raised their daughters Julie and Freda in Boston. In 2016, after Sonny and Bryna had both died, Julie took a DNA test and later got her sister Freda to do the same, revealing some shocking truths. Julie, let's start off in the beginning. What made you want to take this DNA test, and what happened? Well, just simple curiosity. I had been working on my family tree through Ancestry.com for quite a while, several years, and my mom was still alive, so she could help me quite a bit with her side of the family. It was just always interested me. I never felt rooted. I never knew my and felt connected family-wise. And I was just curious, and I like to research, and, you know, on those websites, one thing leads to another. So I decided to do my DNA. Nothing came up that surprised me on my DNA, right? So there was there was no shocker, but there were a couple of names that didn't mean anything to me. And when my DNA matched one of those names, that person reached out to me through Ancestry. His name is Larry, and he's a psychologist and lives in Long Island, and it turns out he's my second cousin. We share the same great-grandfather, but we didn't know any of this. But he was curious, and he also had a deep love of family history and ancestry and had been working on his tree for years, and he noticed my name show up on his list, and he wanted to know if I knew anything, and I knew nothing. And he would say, well, your mom's still alive. Why don't you get her to do the DNA? I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll send her a kit. And he said, your sister, too, because that'll really help. And I'm like, well, my, my sister lives in England. She's a very busy woman. It won't be her priority, but I'll keep bugging her to do it. So Larry and I stayed in touch intermittently, and he'd check in. I couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. We let it go. He never really let it go. So then, two years later, my mom has died, and she wouldn't do the DNA kit, which I never knew why she didn't want to do it. 
And then my sister, out of the blue, who's been living in England for 30 years, gets a two-year contract in the United States and decides to move to Falls Church, Virginia, a place neither of us have ever been. She has no business even being in the United States, and she asks if I can come help her get settled and with child care. So I was on a plane, and while I was there, it dawned on me, she still hasn't done the DNA kit. I'm going to get her one. I'm going to make her spit. I'm going to get the kit. She's going to spit, and we'll go from there. So I did. So it was her test that came back with the shocker, because that is when the, the closest relationship that popped up to her was a man's name that we did not know. And it came up as a really close match. And we looked his name up on Facebook, and there we were staring at a man about 62 years old who looked just like our dad when dad was that age. But dad's been gone 11 years, and this stranger is looking at us. I'm like, oh, my God, that's dad. So we realized dad had an affair. We've got a brother, a half-brother. And I know that a lot of people don't see their Facebook private messages, and that's always frustrating. It could sit there forever. But within 20 minutes, he answered. And all I had said was, hmm, looks like we have a DNA match. Would love to talk to you about it. Because we didn't know what he knew. We didn't want to be the ones to shock him, a stranger saying, you look just like our dad. So we were very delicate about it. And... um I said, well, you know, I'm in Falls Church, Virginia. I live in Phoenix, but I'm visiting my sister and helping her get settled here. I have no idea where you are, but we'd love to talk. And he writes back and he says, you're in Falls Church, Virginia. I'm 45 minutes from you. And the next day is Mother's Day. And I say to him, well, this is amazing. You're 45 minutes from us, and I know Mother's Day is tomorrow, but we're not doing anything. And is there any chance you would come over? And he said, let me talk to my fiancé, and got back to me. And he said, yeah, we can be there at noon. Well, my sister had gone to bed. She didn't even know how far I had taken this. So when she wakes up in the morning, I said, we're going to be meeting our half-brother today. He's going to be here about noon with his fiancé. We started gathering pictures of Dad because we know that we're his sisters, but he doesn't know he's coming to meet his sisters. He doesn't know we know his dad, that we grew up with his dad. So Freda had not yet unpacked everything from England. We spent quite a time scurrying around, going through boxes to try and find photos of dad at different ages. And we did, and we had this stack, and we had it upside down on the dining room table, and the doorbell rang, and we, I opened the door, and it was, I was looking at my dead father, I mean, it was so weird. I mean, it was just, I, I don't know what else to say other than he didn't just resemble Dad. It was like Dad was standing right there. It, it was I almost, I think I almost fainted. And, of course, I got emotional, and I had already warned him that I was the emotional one and Freda was the practical one. So he came in. He sat down at the dining room table. We made small talk. And so I, at some point I said to him, Dana, why do you think, what do you think our connection is? What do you think about this whole DNA thing? And he said, well, obviously, we're cousins some kind of way. I'm like, he thinks we're cousins. And I finally said to him, I just leaned into him, and I said, Dana, 
We are 99.9% sure we are not cousins. We think you're our brother. And I turned over the stack of pictures of Dad, and now he's looking at these photos of this man who he looks just like. He just went silent, actually. He didn't know what to say. And, I mean, I told him I already loved him. I said, I don't know what kind of person you're going to turn out to be, but we love Dad and we love you and you look just like Dad and this is so amazing and, oh, wow, we were so excited. We knew who his dad was and his mom died kind of young. And each time he had asked her through his youth, she would change the subject and at one point he finally stopped asking. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Julie Lawson's story. My goodness, the scary side of DNA tests. But in the end, a truth revealed, a secret unveiled. Julie Lawson's story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories into our conversation with Julie Lawson. She and her sister had taken DNA tests and found out that they had a half-brother. So you find out in the end that there was a secret about an infidelity of your father's. And so let's talk about how that secret affected you and your sister. Well, when we first, the first secret of finding our brother was very exciting to find him and and welcome him, and that he lived 45 minutes away was amazing, and my sister has a 12-year-old son, and so now her son has an uncle, and, you know, they haven't lived in the United States, and and so this was great. So we were just happy-go-lucky. We have this new brother and his fiance, and it was really exciting. Let's talk about the, this gentleman. How did this secret affect him? He had to be relieved, in a sense. He finally knew who his dad was. <laughs> At first, he did kind of I mean he was in shock of course because we knew longer than he did we had several hours to be thinking about it all um he's a very laid back kind of cool quiet guy like dad actually and um at, you know he was speechless and yet he seemed delighted that he had siblings that he's finding out this truth he hadn't he had not been on a quest at all to find out anything he had sort of like given up on it so um, to, he said, and he grew up an only child. So he seemed really excited about all of it. I mean, it was weird, and it was, you know, I don't, I don't know the adjectives to describe the whole thing because there's so it, it's like an avalanche of emotions. You, so that night, you had this puzzlement you had to deal with. So what happened was, because I used to look at my matches pretty regularly to see if anybody new popped up, 
um, cl- in a close uh, related match, like a first, second cousin or something. I wasn't interested in sixth to eighth cousins, but I would check it. So I was kind of familiar with the same names showing up. You know, they do it in order of closeness. So I kind of knew the names. And when he came up on my sister's uh, DNA, I don't know, some time went by, and I thought, you know, that name isn't familiar. Here's this guy. He looks like Dad. I don't remember it showing up on my list. So I looked at my list, and he wasn't on it. And I thought, well, maybe because he's a half-sibling. Again, my ignorance, I don't know how DNA worked. I thought maybe we didn't share enough DNA for him to show up on my list, but he could show up on my sister's list. But that was my naivete and ignorance. And and, um, the cousin that had been in touch with me from my first DNA results, who was asking me all the time, how do you think we're connected? Will your mother do the test? Will your sister do the test? This was Larry. And so I called him like two days into this, and I said, well, something has come up. And I told him, now he's a psychologist, so I told him that this guy isn't on my list. He's on my sister's list, and he looks just like our dad. And Larry got it right away. He was really good over the years at looking at the puzzle pieces of his stuff, and he just, it dawned on him, well, if he's not on my list, then they have to have different fathers. Her sister and she are not full sisters because this guy is related to her sister and not her. So the two sisters can't be full sisters. He, he was the, the puzzle fixer. He brought all the pieces to the table and he wasn't going to tell me at first because he knew it was going to change my life. And he said, have you looked at the center organs between Dana and your sister? And I said, no, I don't know. What's a centimorgan? It sounds like an insect with a hundred legs or something. And and he said, no, it's a way of quantifying DNA. A certain range of centimorgans means you're a half-sibling. A certain is a full-sibling or parent-child relationship. So um, I looked at the centimorgans between him and my sister, and they fell into the correct range of half-siblings. At some point, Larry said, did you look at the centimorgans between you and your sister? And I thought, my first reaction was, well, why would I do that? I don't even care about my son of organs between me and my sister. And then I realized in a split second he was telling me something. I'm like, what is he meaning? And I looked at the centimorgans, and we had the same amount of centimorgans as she had with her other half-sibling. So I was a half-sibling. And that was a shocking moment. We didn't cry because, oh, now we're only half siblings. And it wasn't like that. If she had had no DNA, she'd always be my full sister. We cried, I think, the shock of it all. In that split second, we were learning that we didn't have the same father. And that my dad wasn't my dad. I mean, he was my dad, but he wasn't my father. And that... You know, it still feels fresh, obviously. I didn't even know I still had this emotion in me. But that split second is when we were freaking out. Like, what does this all mean? There's more to this. And if if my new brother is now not my brother because we share a different dad, and my dad isn't my father, who's my father? Oh, my God. It went from this incredible joy and delight it was like having dad around. And to suddenly not. 
you you now have got to be curious again. It's almost like what what really happened here? Who's my in your, at this late stage in your life? You're asking yourself, who's my daddy, and who did that turn out to be, Julie? Oh. How did this How did this come to be that you made this discovery? This was to Larry helping me with all these puzzle pieces. Man, my little cogs were so busy turning. I was angry. I was so hurt. I had a night of being in a fetal position, wailing like a baby to my mother. I mean, why? What What did you do? What is this about? And And now it was starting to make sense that all of this was explaining why she treated me the way she did. It was so intensely primal. A primal therapist would have had a ball with me. It was unbelievable. You talk about cathartic and so painful and so shocking. It's like your whole life. And people, I've heard people say, well, nothing really changed. Your dad's always going to be your dad. Your sister's always going to be your sister. And I want to strangle those people. I'm trying to be cool about it. They just don't get it. Of course, the content of my relationships don't change, but the context does. And that's shocking. It's just so much shock to the system of feeling so ungrounded and also getting an explanation at the same time for your torturous youth. You and your mom had a tough relationship, and oh. now, you, now you're understanding why. Your mom had a secret, too. That, And by the way, she had to bear that secret, and that was no duck walk either for her. I, I'm sure it wasn't. I know, so I went through that range of emotions, trying to put myself in the shoes of this young woman and what she was going through. I mean, so you want to have compassion for everybody in their story. I mean, we're all so damaged to some extent, and some of us get to process it and go on and do great, and some don't process it at all, and she was one that never processed any of it. She was a very immature woman throughout her life. And she had a lot of wonderful qualities and very loved by a lot of people. And she was a young girl, and she was in love with this boy that she was dating. And she wasn't in love with her. She was just a nice girl. And they were all friends in a small circle that double-dated. And she wanted him to marry her. Her best friends were 17 and 18, and they were all engaged. She wanted to be engaged. She wanted to get out of her parents' house. She hated her stepmother. Um... And she fell in love with this boy, and he wasn't into her like that. And so they stopped dating. He told her, you know, if you want to get married, you really better find somebody else because I'm going to have a life of adventures. I've got things I want to do. And she went on and married my dad. And when we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story with Julie Lawson. Again, this was ripped off the headlines of the Wall Street Journal and it was one of the most popular stories of the year. And when we continue, more with Julie Lawson. A DNA test turns her life and her sister's upside down. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories. Julie Lawson has been telling us her family's story. One day, she and her sister took a DNA test. Her sister showed as having a half-brother, but Julie, through the help of her cousin Larry, soon realized that she and her sister were half-sisters as well. So now she's left wondering, who's my daddy? Julie's mother fell in love in high school, but her boyfriend at the time was just not interested. So her mother married another man she didn't love. Julie, tell us what happened next. About a year and a half into the marriage, she'd already had her first child, my brother. She called her ex-boyfriend up. She heard he was... um, Oh, no, she she called him up because she wanted to go for a cup of coffee, supposedly. They got together, and um, they were commiserating. She was telling him that she wasn't happy in her marriage. It wasn't what she thought it would be or should be. And they had a one-night thing, and he told her afterwards that he felt really guilty and that she, we, they shouldn't do this anymore. And he said, look... You know, you're married, you have a child, and this has got to stop. You've got to go take care of your marriage. And so they never talked again, and I guess a few months later, she called him to say she was pregnant. And she didn't exactly say she knew it was his or thought it was his. Supposedly, she was just saying she was pregnant, and he, being 23 years old and tired of being kind of chased, um... He said to her, he said, you know what, he he thought she was trying to trap him. And he told her, you've got to take care of your marriage and don't call me anymore. Well, at 23 years old, he had his own mind, didn't want to even think about that. So Larry in New York, the psychologist, who's my second cousin, has been trying to put these pieces together. And he, when he realizes, and of course I get past the him telling me that I obviously have a different father, he went back and looked at our mutual matches on the DNA list. And he knows a lot of the family members, even though there's two sides of the family that I haven't talked in decades. He's helping me with these pieces, and he's looking at the ma- names of the matches, and he's clever enough to also go on Facebook and look at these people's pages. So he's looking at these names, and he says, look, there's this name, it's initials only, but I think you need to reach out to them. And then there's another name, which I know, which is a Greenberg, and you should try and reach this man, Les Greenberg, because a cousin of Les's is coming up as your second cousin, which means their parent is a first cousin, and if their parent is a first cousin, one of those uncles... Uh, uh, brothers is got to be your father and I'm like oh my god I couldn't believe that he had figured all this out so I'm looking for this man Les Greenberg looking at his page two things I see I see a name that's familiar from my childhood a person that's about my age that I grew up with in Boston is somehow connected to his page and I'm thinking it's got to be her but the other odd thing says is you have a mutual friend named Arthur Katz. Arthur Katz comes up as a mutual friend to me and Miss Greenberg, and I don't know any Greenbergs. I, say, I write to Arthur. I said, do you know this guy and how to reach him? And he says, yeah, hold on a minute. I'll get you his email. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so easy. And so he gives me Les's email, and I email him, and I said, we have a DNA connection, and I'd like to explore it further. 
and I have some questions, and would you be open to talking about it? And he said, sure. So we went back and forth with emails, and um, so I have to stop there for one moment just to say, when I was a kid, maybe 12 or 13, I asked my mother to share her love story with me about her and my dad. How did you meet? What did you have in common? How did you know he was the one? How did you know you wanted to spend the rest of your life with him? What kind of things did you do on dates? And she started the story. Well, she said, first I have to tell you that your dad wasn't my first love, which to a kid, it's kind of shocking. You just kind of think it is. I don't know. At least I did. And so I'm like, yeah, okay. And she said, my first love was high. And then she went on with the story about my dad. And so now I'm in touch with Les Greenberg, and he sends me an email, and I said to him, tell me who your uncles are. So Les writes me this list of his four uncles, and at the very bottom, and each one has a nickname in parentheses, and at the very bottom it says Ira, and in parentheses it says hi. So I knew that was my mother's childhood love, puppy love, who she said. Her love story started with hi. The odds of that email having nicknames in parentheses was just uh, remarkable. And I'm saying, of these four brothers, who's alive? Anybody alive? And he says, well, out of the four brothers, my uncle hi is alive. I said, oh, my God. Now I can hardly breathe. My father is alive. And he's 89. And he's in Florida, and for the first time in a long time, I'm on the East Coast with my sister in Virginia. And Les, I don't tell Les yet that I know that High's got to be my father. I tell him I want could I speak with High, and he says, yeah, and here's his number. And um, I called. I started out with, you know, my name. I didn't use my last name. And I said I was doing a DNA family tree search, and it looked like, you know, we had some things in common, would he mind answering some questions? And he was like, no, go ahead, ask me anything you want. I'm like, great, so did you know a Bryna? Now, it's a most unusual name, actually, so if you ever knew one, you wouldn't forget that you knew one. And he right away said, Bryna? Sure, I knew Bryna. I thought, oh, God, now my heart's really pounding. And I said, um, did you know her as a friend within a circle of friends? Uh, or did you date her? And he said, no, we dated. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. I said, hi, I have a really personal question to ask you. And it's really uncomfortable asking it, but it would really help me greatly. And he said, go ahead, ask me anything you want. I said, did you have sex with her? Did we have sex? Yeah, we had sex. I, and that's when I really felt like I knew for sure. And I, this is what I said to him. I said, hi, are you sitting down? And he says, I'm 89. I'm almost always sitting down. And I said, do you have any heart conditions? And he said, heart conditions? No, I had a stint about 10 years ago, but I'm good. I said, great. I said, Brian is my mother, and I'm 99.9% sure you're my father. 
and there was a moment of silence, and he said, Julie, you're blowing my mind. And I thought, oh, my God, I haven't heard that expression since the 60s. And he sounds like quite a character, and I know he's totally shocked. And, and he was very, stand, became standoffish. And he said, I, I don't know what, what made you think that this is true. You don't have my DNA to test. And how did you get my number? So I mentioned all the names, his nephews, his nieces. These are my first cousins that I never knew. And they're his nieces and nephews. I realize he's pretty upset. So I try, like, reroute the direction the conversation was going. And I start to ask him about his life. And we were on the phone for over an hour. But I think towards the beginning, actually, I said, he says to me, well, I don't know what you want from me. What do you want from me? And I started to cry. And I just said, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. And when we come back, this remarkable story continues... There's going to be a trip to Florida, and Julie will be meeting her dad. More of Julie Lawson's story here on Our American Stories. Return to Our American Stories in the last part of this amazing story. Julie Lawson has been telling us how she found out her dad was not really her dad, and she then got in contact with her real biological father, who lives in Florida. She told him, quote, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. Julie, what did he say next? He says, come to Florida? Come to Florida? I don't know. Well, if you want to come, come. I said, no, I'm not going to come with that tone of voice. So I I redirected the conversation, and he spent an hour telling me about his life and the order of things. And um, he was quite a character. He's funny, and he's got a great, sharp mind. And, I I mean, actually quite amazing. And... um, Towards the end of the conversation, he said, well, I don't know what else to say. And I said again, just tell me to come to Florida. I think because maybe I inserted a little Yiddish in the conversation, and I'm a really good listener, and I was so taken by his story, and I had so many questions. I think I softened him a little bit because his tone of voice changed this time. And he said, you want to come to Florida, come. And that was it. I said, I'm going to try and be there within a couple of weeks. And do you know that the week that I was able to get a flight turned out to be the weekend of Father's Day. So this started on Mother's Day, and I met my father and shared his first Father's Day. He never married. He never had children. He didn't know I existed. And at 89, he had a daughter and his first Father's Day. Well, I went to Florida and a couple of days right before Father's Day, his nephew, Les, who had sent me that email, lives an hour away and had arranged to meet me. Les met me at the um, independent living home where Hi was living. Hi opened the door and 
He reached out his arms to me. He said, welcome home, darling. I tried to keep it together. I mean, there I am with a total stranger. It was very mixed emotions. I almost felt an instant love for him. We had a month of conversations before we met. And we would talk a long, long time. And so I did feel this love, and yet it was weird because he's still a total stranger. My mission in sharing my story is I want to find a way to encourage parents to tell their children the truth. Some people say it's not that black and white an issue, but for me it is, even taking into consideration children who are born from rape, from incest, from whatever unusual ways it could be. I mean, I I understand, but I think all children at some age, when it's age-appropriate and in a safe emotional environment with a professional, I think we all deserve to know who our biological parents are. It doesn't mean we'll choose to have a relationship with them. And I, I believe all men have a right to know they have offspring on this planet. I want to encourage people to tell the truth. I know they're afraid. They're afraid of consequences. They're afraid of rocking other boats. They're afraid of being judged. But we can't live our life in fear of what other people think. What they think is none of our business. We need to we need to tell the truth of our lives so that other people get to live the truth of their lives. This is I think so the deepest part of the story and I think what I think people also are afraid to do is in the end tell the truth to themselves. For my mother, every minute, I was a reminder of her indiscretion, the lie she was living. The, the pain that she had to live with her whole oh, life? Oh, yeah. And oh. The, longer, the longer she lived the lie, the harder it was to come forward. Oh. Because when my dad died 11 years ago, she could have told me. If she was trying to protect him, she could have told me. And then I was with her the last 10 days of her life, and she was lucid. And she could have told me. She had many opportunities to break free from this self-imposed judgment and shame. You know, she had many years to process it, and she chose not to. And in some ways, it's because she was just incredibly emotionally damaged herself and didn't know how to really do it. But on the other hand, at some point when you're an adult, I think it is your responsibility to look at your crap and process it and try and come out the other side of it. And um, she just wasn't evolved enough to do anything about her damage. And so instead, she damaged me severely. I grew up thinking I was mentally retarded. Back then, it was labeled emotionally disturbed. I was taken to shrinks when I was very young. She She just didn't know how to look at me and be loving. I know she loved me, but she couldn't treat me lovingly at all, ever. I've been disowned. I've been put on the street. I ran away from home at 15 with nothing on my back but the clothes I was wearing in the middle of a blizzard. I mean, I had to do something to save a piece of my soul because I kept thinking, I bet I'd be a different person if it weren't for all this stress every day and all her nonsense. I, I could find out who I am. I could just be me instead of going to school and zoning out. I can't focus because I'm worrying about what happened last night and what's going to happen when I get home and I'm feeling so small and I have no self-esteem and I'm a loner and I'm now growing up being abused by my older brother who I adored and then he went from being my hero to an abuser. Um, 
I left home at 15 and went to the streets of New York City. I had a really rough life. I never knew what a parent's love felt like. And I am in love with my birth father. We have so much in common. It's uncanny what we have in common. And we adore one another. And we we could just we talk for hours. Sometimes we talk every day, every other day. Um, I just came back from his 90th birthday party. I got to be with my father on his 90th for his birthday party. He chose four songs to express his feelings through music because he said he didn't want to bore everybody, that he'd say a little something between songs. And one of the songs he chose for us was Ella Fitzgerald singing, How Deep is the Ocean. That's how deep his love is for me. And two nights ago, when we were talking, he said, oh, Julie, having you in my life, he said, you know, I was lucky. I was the baby of the family. I was loved by everybody. I had family. But it's so different having a daughter. This kind of love, I mean, you're mine. I have a daughter. I'm 89. This was when he was 89. He first said it. He was crying. I said, why are you crying? He says, I've missed 65 years of knowing my daughter. I had a daughter walking the earth that I didn't get to know. And you know what, Lee? He grew, he, I grew up around the corner from where he was. I could have known him the first 25 years of my life. All the love I missed out on, all the things I could have, I would have had a soft place to land had I not been the secret what you still have is such a remarkable gift. And this man, this man had chosen to never, never marry, and he had chosen to never have kids. And my goodness, what a gift for him. That's what a what gift for said. him. He just told me the other night, he said, you've changed my life. He said, I feel so different. I have a daughter. And I said, I know. I said, and you could have been a jerk, and I wouldn't have liked you, or I could have been a jerk, and you wouldn't have liked me. But look at us. And uh, by the way, it was clear that you guys, you, you both shared the most important of all things, which is a common sense of humor. He cracks me up. He's a great joke teller. I could never remember jokes. Oh, does he have a slew, and they're pretty good, and he's got a good delivery. To me the other day, he says, you know, Julie, I've been thinking. I said, what you been thinking about? He said, I've been thinking about what I want on my headstone. I said, your headstone? He says, well, you know, I'm 90 years old. You think about these things. I said, yeah, that makes sense. I said, so what do you want? Did you come up with something? He says, yeah. I wanted to say, stop by any time. I'm always in. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. He's adorable. Oh, well, lucky you is all I can yeah, tell you. And lucky him. So lucky. lucky him. Yeah, that's what he says all the time. <laughs> How lucky he is that he has a daughter like me. He said to me, he said, if I had met a woman like you, I'd have married Wow. How about that? How about Neither that? of my parents ever expressed any joy about my presence in their life. Amazing. So this is an amazingly cathartic experience for me. I get to be 65 years old and feel this kind of love. And you've been listening to Julie Lawson, and what a story she has to tell. It's a movie, folks. I mean, my goodness, what a movie it would be. And I am sure that as all of this DNA testing happens around this world and around this country. My goodness, these are stories that I would bet are popping up all over the country. And by the way, I think Julie's right. Every parent should tell the truth to their kids when they're ready. And all children at some time do deserve to know 
who their biological parents are. And I even love the way she said that men, they too deserve to know. And my goodness, when she started to talk about her parents, her life, and how she felt so small, she felt so alone, she felt abused, she left home at 15, she did have a really, really rough life. And my goodness, we know why. When she said those words, neither of my parents ever expressed any kind of joy about having me in their life. Uh, Just like a kick in my gut. And we know why now. The mother had an illegitimate child, and the father knew it. And the father also knew that the mother didn't love him. And she knew it. What a disaster. And what a story, and what courage for telling it. Julie Lawson's story. My goodness, more people like her, I'm sure, are out there than we know. Julie Lawson's story, her sister's story, and, of course, High's story. And in the end, a beautiful love story here on Our American Stories.